Chapter Number Twenty One of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Twenty One In Which the Summer Passes. Midsummer arrived, and David, healed of his wounds, pronounced himself as strong as a cricketer. What he meant by that, Hoyle could only conjecture, and, after much pondering, decided that his strength was now so great that should he desire to do so, he could leap into the air or jump long distances after the manner of crickets. You reckon you could jump as fur in one jump now as from here t'other side the water trough yonder? he asked one day, as they sat on the porch steps together. No, I don't reckon so, said David, laughing. Well, could you jump over this here house and the loom shed in one jump? I don't reckon so. Be sensible, honey son. You mustn't allow him to ask ye fool questions, doctor. You knows they ain't nobody can do such as that, Hoyle, called his mother from within. He has some idea in his head. What is it, Brother Hoyle? I heard you telling Cass that you was getting strong as one of those there cricket bugs, and I had one t'other day. He could jump as fur as Clar across the porch, and he was only about an inch long or less, less than an inch. I thought if Brother David was that strong, he could jump a heap. David had comforted Hoyle for the loss of Cassandra from the home by explaining that they were now become brothers for the rest of their lives, and in order to give this assurance appreciable significance, he had taken the small chap to the circus and had treated him to pink lemonade and a toy balloon. They had remained over until the next day, and Dr. Bartlett and David examined him all over at the old physician's office, and then had gone into a little room by themselves and stayed a long time, leaving him outside. Then, to compensate for such gross neglect, David had taken him to a clothing store and bought him a complete suit of store clothing, very neat and pretty. Hoyle would have been in the seventh heaven over all this, were it not, alas, that there the child, for the first time in his life, looked into a mirror that revealed him to himself from head to foot, little wry neck, hunched back and all. David, not realizing this was a revelation to the little man, wondered as they walked away that all his enthusiasm and exuberance of spirits had left him, and that he walked at his side wearily and sadly silent. His pathetic little legs spindled down from the smart new trousers, and his hands dangled weakly from his thin wrists, all but his fingers clung tightly to his toy balloon. We're going back to the bishop's now, and we'll have a good dinner, and then you'll have a whole hour to play with Dorothy before we leave for home, said David cheeringly. The child made no response other than to slip his hand into David's. What are you thinking about, Brother Hoyle? Just nothing. I were a wanderin'. 
Oh, there's a difference. What were you wondering? Ma told me if you were that good to take me to a circus, I mustn't bother you with a heap of questions that want no good. That's all right. I'm questioning you. What were you and that old man feeling me all over for? Were you trying to make out how come my head is sot like this away? Reckon you really could set it straight and get this ere lump off my back? Don't worry about your head and your back. You have a very good head. That's more than some can say. I never seen nary other boy like I be. You reckon that little girl, she thought I were queer? What little girl? Miss Towers' little girl. She said, turn round. And when I done hit, she said, turn round again. Then she said, why don't you hoy your head like I do? What did you say? Didn't say nothing. Just asked her why and she hoy her head like I did. And she said, don't want to. So I said, don't want to. He twisted his head about to look up at David's face, and his lips smiled. But in his eyes was a suspicion of tears. His heart heavy for the child, David praised him for a brave little chap, comforting him as best he could. You reckon she'll like me if I were to give her this here balloon? No. You take that home to sister. The little girl can get one when the circus comes again. But after dinner, David did not send Hoyle off to play the hour with Dorothy. He took her on his knee and entertained them both with tales and mimicry until he had them in gales of laughter, and for the time being Hoyle forgot his troubles. As the days passed, David became more and more interested in his patch of ground and the growing things in his garden. Never had he labored with his hands in this fashion, and each night he lay down to sleep physically weary in contentment of spirit. Steadily he progressed toward the desired goal of health. In his young wife, also, he found a rich satisfaction, watching her unfold and blossom into the gracious wifehood and ladyhood he had dreamed of for her. Together they used to stroll to the little farm where she told him all she knew about the crops, what was best for the animals, and what would be needed for themselves. Long before David was able to oversee the work himself, she had set Elwine Timms to sowing cowpeas and planting corn. Behold your heritage, David said to her one morning as they strolled thus among the thrifty greenness and patches of vetch where the cow was contentedly feeding. He laughed joyously and drew his wife's arm through his. She looked up at him wistfully. He thought she sighed and bent his head to listen. What was that little sound? I was only thinking. We'll sit here where we sat that morning when we both put our hands to the plow, and you tell me what you were thinking. I ought not to stop now, David. I've left all for Mother to do. I was that busy at the cabin I didn't get down to her this morning. You can't keep two homes going with only your own two dear hands, Cassandra. It must be stopped. We'll find someone to live with your mother and take your place. She gave a little gasp, then sat silently, her hands dropped passively in her lap, 
and he thought she seemed sad. He took her face between his hands and made her look into his eyes. Don't be worried, sweetheart. We'll make a few changes. You're mine now, you know. Not only to serve me and labor for me as you've been doing all these weeks, but, but I like it, David. I like doing for you. I hope it may always be so I can do for you. Would you like me to become an invalid again so you can keep on in the way you began? Not that. But sometimes I think, what if you shouldn't really need me? She hid her face on his breast. I, I want you to need me, David. It was almost like a cry for help as she said it. Dear heart, dear heart, what are you thinking and fearing? Can't you understand? You are mine now to be cared for and loved and held very near and dear to my heart. We are no more twain. We are one. Yes, but, but David, I, I want you to need me. She sobbed, and he knew some thought was stirring in her heart, which she could not yet put into words. He comforted her and soothed her, explaining certain plans which later he put into execution, so that her duties at the fall place were brought to an end, and he could have her always with him. A daughter of Uncle Cotton, who had gone down into South Carolina to live, was induced to come and stay with the widow, and the girl's brother came with her and helped David on the farm. Then David made changes in and about his cabin. He built on another room, and put therein a cook-stove. He could not bear to see his young wife bending at the hearth, preparing their meals, and when she demurred, he explained that he wished to keep her as she was, and not see her growing old and wrinkled before her time, with the burning heat of the open fire in her face, like many of the mountain women. One evening, they had eaten their supper out under the trees. She proposed they should walk up to her father's path, as she called the spot, towards which she so often lifted her eyes, and David was well pleased to go with her. As they set out, she asked him to wait a moment, while she went back for something, and quickly returned, bringing his flute. I've often wished father could have heard you play on this, she said, as he took it from her hand. They crossed the little river that tumbled and rushed among great moss-covered boulders on its way to the fall, and followed its wayward course toward its head, where the way was untrodden and wild, as if no human foot had ever climbed along its banks. After a little, they turned off toward a tremendous rock of solid granite that had been cleft smoothly in twain by some gigantic force of nature and walking between the towering walls of stone came out on the farther side upon a small level space where immense ferns and flags grew thickly in the rich soil held in place and kept damp by the great cool masses of stone above this little dell the hill rose steeply and Cassandra led him to a narrow opening in the dense shrubbery surrounding the spot from which a beaten path wound upward, overarched with thickly interlacing branches of birchwood and hemlocks, 
Along this winding trail they climbed, until they reached a cluster of enormous cedars, which made the dark place on the mountain Cassandra had pointed out to him from below. Here the path widened so they could walk side by side, and continued along a level line at the foot of the dark mass of trees. Here father used to walk up and down reading in his little books. Seems like I can hear his voice now. Sometimes he would look off over the valley below us there and repeat parts by heart. Isn't it beautiful here, David? Heavenly beautiful. I'm glad we never came here before. Why, dearest? Because... She hesitated with parted lips and cheeks flushed from the climb. David stood with bared head and felt as if he were in a cathedral. And why because? he asked again. For now we bring just happiness with us. We're not troubled or wondering about anything. No sorrow comes with us. In our hearts we are sure, sure. She paused again and lifted her eyes to his. Sure that all is right when we belong to each other this way? Yes, sure. Oh, David, sure, sure. She threw her arms about his neck and drew his face down to hers. It's even a greater happiness than when he used to carry me in his arms here. There's no sorrow near us. It's all far away. Thus, sometimes she would throw off all the habitual reserve of her manner and open her heart to him, following the rich impulses of her nature to their glorious revelation. Now, David, sit here and play. Play your flute as you did that first time when I learned who made the music that I thought must be the voices, that time I climbed up to see. They sat under the great cedars on a bank of moss, and David took the flute from her hand, smiling as he thought of that moment when he had stood among the blossoming laurel and watched her as she moved about his cabin the day before his hurt, and how she had kissed it. I used to sit here like this. She bent forward and rested her head on his knee. She had a way of putting her two hands together as a child is taught to hold them in prayer, and placing them beneath her cheek. And so she waited, while David paused, his hand on her hair, and his eyes fixed on the sea of hilltops where they melted into the sky. A mysterious, undulating line of the faintest blue, seen through the arching branches above, and the swaying hemlocks on either side, and over the tops of a hundred varieties of pines and deciduous trees beneath them, all down the long slope up which they had climbed. Thus they waited, until she lifted her head and looked into his eyes questioningly. He bent forward and kissed her lips, then lifted the flute to his own, but again paused. What are you thinking now, David? she asked. So you really thought it was the voices? 
What was their message, Cassandra? I couldn't make it out then, but I thought of this place and of Father, and it was all at once like as if he would make me know something, and I prayed God would he lead me to understand was it a message or not. So that was the way I kept on following until I... You came to me, dear. Yes. And what did you think the interpretation was then? Yes, it was you. You, David. It was love and hope and gladness. Everything. Everything. Go on. Everything good and beautiful. But sometimes it comes again. What comes? Play, David, play. I'll tell you another time in another place. Not here. No, no. So he played for her, until the dusk deepened around and below them, and they had to make their way back stumblingly. When they came to the wild, untrodden bank of the little river, David resigned the choosing of their path entirely to her, and followed close, holding her hand where she led. When at last they reached their cabin, they did not light candles, but sat long on the doorway conversing on the deep things of their souls. It still seemed to David as if she held something back from him, and now he begged her for a more perfect self-revealing. It is no longer as if we were separate, dearest. Can't you remember and feel that we are one? In a way I do. It is very sweet. You say in a way. In what way? Why, David? I want your point of view. I see. We're not really one until we see from each other's hilltop, are we? No. And you never take me into the secret places of your heart and let me look off from your own hilltop. Didn't I this very evening, David? We stood on the same spot of earth and looked off on the same distance. Yet in my soul, I know I did not see what you saw. Pictures come to me very suddenly and just float by, hardly understood by myself. I didn't want you to see all I saw, David. I don't know how comes it, but all the time, even in the midst of our great gladness, right when it is most beautiful, far before me, right across our way, is a place that is dim. It seems most like the shadows that fall on the hills when those great piles of clouds pass through the sky, when it is deep blue all around them and the sun shines everywhere else. Your soul is still an undiscovered country to me, Cassandra. I should think you'd like that. Don't men love to go discovering? And if you could get into the secret chambers, as you call them, you wouldn't find much. Then you'd be sorry. Cassandra, what are you covering and holding back? I don't know, David. It's like it was when I couldn't understand the message of the voices. When it comes clear and strong, I'll tell you. Then there is something. With a little sigh, she rose and entered the cabin. He sat in silence 
as she had left him. But soon she returned. Standing behind him in the darkness, she put her interlaced fingers under his chin and drew his face backward until she could see it, white in the dusk beneath her eyes. You have come back to explain? If I can, David. It's hard for me to put into words what is so dim, what I see. It's all just love for you, David. The love burns and blazes up in me like the fire when it's fiercest on the hearth, when the day is cold outside. You've seen it so. In the little books my father used to read, there was a tale of a woman who had my name. She foretold the sorrows to come. Perhaps she saw, as I see, things in the dim pictures, only more clearly, and wisdom was given her to interpret them. Often and often I felt that in me, that strange seeing and knowing before, and I don't like it. Only once it made me feel glad, when it led me to you and frail that terrible moment. But it wasn't a picture that time. It was a feeling that pulled me and made me go. I would have gone that time if I had died for it. He took her two hands and covered them with kisses there in the darkness. I told you you were my priestess of all that is good. But I don't want to be always seeing the shadows and foreboding. I want to be all happy, happy the way you are. I believe you are one of the blessed ones of God who have the gift. But you are right to feel as you do. Your life will be more normal and wholesome, not to try to probe into the future. I'll not attempt to take my coarser humanity into your holy places, dear. He led her into their canvas sleeping chamber and there she was soon calmly slumbering at his side. But he lay long, pondering, and trying to see his way out of a certain dilemma of unrest that had been creeping into his veins and prodding him forward ever since his reestablished health had become an assured fact. He recognized it as no more than the proper impulse of his manhood not to stagnate and slumber in a lotus dream even as delicious a dream as this. Ah, it was inevitable. His world must become her world. Herein lay the dilemma. This unsullied, beautiful being must enter that sordid old world that had so pressed upon him and broken him down. This idol might go on for perhaps a year longer, but not for always not for always. He slept at last, and dreamed that they were being driven along a dark, cold river, wide and swift, that they had entered it where it was only a narrow, rushing stream, sparkling and tumbling over rocks, and winding in intricate turnings on itself, that they had laughed as they followed it, splashing along the stones where she led him by the hand, until it grew wider and deeper and colder, and they were lifted from their feet and were tossed and swirled about, 
and she cried and clung to him, and even as he clasped her and held her, he knew her to be slipping from him. Then in terror he awoke, and reaching out in the darkness, drew her into his embrace, and slept again. End of chapter 21 Recording by Sandra Anderson